All right, so these are a special set of lessons we wrote about eight or nine years ago. And we wrote them specifically for ministers' meetings when we were training up ministers or training up people who felt called to the ministry. And, and so this is a remnant set of teachings left over from that. So I've broken it up into three parts. And so we're expounding upon it in that regard. I wanted to expand it to the body of Christ because it isn't just preachers that need to be mighty men and women of valor. It needs to be everybody, the whole body of Christ. Everybody's given the armor of God. Therefore, everybody ought to be mighty men and women of valor. And there's nothing of these, this allegory that we're borrowing from the Old Testament of David and his mighty men. There's nothing that says these men were called to be preachers. They were just common folk who were tired of living bummed out lives. And so they joined themselves to someone much greater than them because he had what they didn't. And that has to be one of the most critical ingredients if you're going to get better in life. You've got to recognize where you are, be totally disgruntled with it, and then look to see somebody who has it going together or who God calls you to that can get you where you need to be. And so part of becoming a mighty man or woman of valor is to look up to somebody. If all you're doing is looking towards Friday night or Friday 5 p.m., you will never go anywhere in life. We do not live for the weekend, no matter what the rock and roll songs say. We don't say TGIF, no matter what the restaurant says. We live for Jesus Christ, and we have an upward calling. And so we started teaching this last week, how to become a mighty man or woman of valor. And we have to also make note it is a not-so-overnight process. So this is part two. Let's look at our lesson because we do have a little bit of review built, built in. Thus far, our study has revealed that David's mighty men didn't start off mighty. We saw that. Rather, they started off as a group of fearful societal rejects. And so if that's you this morning, be of good courage. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay, as we call it here, possum hollered. You don't have to stay dejected, ignorant, broke. Uh, you don't have to stay a slave to your last name or your last name's legacy or your region's legacy. We can change and come up out of this. However, as these men, as they gathered to a captain and followed his lead, he was able to impart things into them they would have never developed on their own, and that is courage and victory. That's why you need a captain, as Dr. Barclay calls it, a captain in your life or a pastor or a mentor. If you work out, you need a personal trainer. If you play sports, you need a coach or an instructor. You cannot get good on your own. And what those men and women have in them are legacies and generations of instruction that was handed down to them that can be imparted into you even quicker than they got it. I think about, for me as an example, I have Dr. Barclay in my life, and, and what he's instructed me in in, less, in well, 10 years or so, it's taken him 40 years to pioneer. But he had Lester Summerall. He had John Osteen. He had uh, Dr. George Evans and Dr. Roy Hicks and those men imparting into him. And what he got from them, it took them 70 years to pioneer. And what they got, they were building upon 200 years of advancing of the gospel in America. And so this thing is designed to exponentially increase. If you play it alone, if you're a stay-at-home Christian, if you're a basement Christian or, or simply a Ustream Christian, then you get to pioneer all that all over by yourself and you're starting from ground zero. It's like moving to the bush of Australia with nothing but a loincloth, and you get to be Neolithic man all over again. Why would you do that? The body of Christ is designed to perpetuate itself faster and faster and faster. And so I'm excited as I have children, I expect them to learn before they're 10 and 15 what took me 35 years to learn. 
And why shouldn't it? To learn faith, to learn how to pray. My kids already pray better now than I prayed as a 19 and 20-year-old. My five-year-old prays better than I did as a 20-year-old because she's heard mom and dad pray. They've been around on church services. My kids got spirit-filled at three. I got spirit-filled at 19. And so they're already way ahead of the game, which is how it should be. But when you're a loner and won't submit to anybody, you get to reinvent the wheel after you invent the chisel, after you invent the hammer, after you find what flint rock is, after you figure out how to keep warm. Why would you want to do that? To review the first six steps to becoming a mighty man of valor, number one, you have to find a captain. That's a pastor. That's a mentor. This works good for careers. Even if you're in the craftsman-type artisans, you have to find someone who can train you, and you become a, um, an underling to them to where they, they're the master, you're the apprentice. You become a master carpenter by sitting under a master carpenter, and you can learn things more quickly. Same way in the kingdom. In uh, the martial arts, you'd have a sensei or a sifu, uh, depending on if you're Japanese or Chinese, and they would teach you what they had learned and teach you the nuances of what they'd learned. And they learned it from somebody who learned it from somebody who learned it from somebody who developed it 500 years ago. You have to find a captain, and that is always going to be someone greater than you at the kingdom. They've got to be greater than you. You don't submit down, you submit up. And we had a, a subpoint 1A, that you need to make sure your captain is also submitted to leadership. We don't submit to people who aren't submitted. Even in the military, whoever's over you is under someone who's under someone who's under someone who's under the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's under the president because he's the commander-in-chief. And the commander-in-chief is rotated out every four to eight years because he's submitted to the will of the people. There's no way to escape submission and authority. So we want to make sure we find a captain. Number two, trust in the safety of having a captain. And we looked at examples of this from David and his mighty men last week, so you can get the first lesson to review. Trust in the safety of having a captain. When you have someone over your life, your life is much simpler. Sometimes when you're, when you're arrogant or rebellious, you think leadership just wants to boss people around. I can tell you as a leader, I would much rather be where you're at and someone just tell me what to do. It removes so much burden, so much stress. Just tell me what to do, and I will do it so good and be so happy doing it because I won't have to worry about what you get or how you get shot at or how you get buffeted. I'll just help you. Leadership is not a place you covet. Only if you're a fool do you covet it. Leadership is a place God promotes you to because he sees that you're fit and so you want to make sure you trust in having the safety of a captain because they're going to hear from God and direct you as you need to. Plus, they're the ones that has the vision, and you get to learn something under their safety and protection. I remember when I was a geologist for uh, my engineering firm, and we were working on this big TDOT project. I was submitted to my company. I was the geologist over this project, so I was the representative on the geotech side to all these big meetings under the construction side of the project. It was a big quarter-billion-dollar quarter project, massive, massive project. And I would go there, and any time I spoke up, I spoke up representing the company, but they never wrote my name down. They always said the company was called Wilbur Smith Associates, WSA. WSA made these recommendations, which I was so happy that it was WSA's name on that document and not Chris McMichael. I was submitted, and they took the fall. If something goes wrong, I'm not going to court. 
WSA is going to court because I'm a submitted man. I'm just repeating and doing what they told me to do. Part of the safety of having a captain is you don't fall alone. If you fall, you go down with somebody else. Everybody's going to fall. Loners fall all by themselves. Even Ecclesiastes says, if you don't have somebody, how will you get back up? So you got to trust in the safety of having a captain, in this case, a spiritual captain. Number three, trust your captain to hear from God. That's what we want to do is we want to make sure the captain is submitted and he hears from God. Number four, be honest with your captain in times of weakness and fear. This is a sign of a good captain is that you can approach them. The Bible even says of God Almighty, he is easy to be entreated. That means he's easily approached. When your boss or your leader is a jerk and you're afraid to come to them, there's a bad leadership model at hand. There ought to be reverence and respect for the captain or the leader, but not so much that you're afraid to say, look, I I can't do this. I need help. Can you help me? You ought to be able to approach your boss, your leader, your husband, your pastor, and say, can I talk to you about something? And they be easily entreated. And then number five, uh, make sure that you trust your captain to hear from God. Number five is see step three. And this was the example last week when David heard from God. God said, go up at once and take Keilah, defend it. And so he tells his men, we're going to take Keilah. And uh, the men say, we're terrified here in safety. How much more will we be scared when we leave our safety? So David goes back to seek God again. And God says, nope, go up. Go up anyway. So that's our fifth step there that you've got to trust your captain, even when it's going to pull you out of your comfort zone. One of the things having a captain in your life is going to do is stretch you and show you that you're capable of stuff you didn't think you were capable of. But that's why you need a captain. If you could get it on your own, you would have already. And it's possible to be in the presence of a captain but not really have a captain. And that's, that's what we struggle with as pastors. I even say here on a regular basis, I don't pastor everybody that comes to this church, and we are not a mega church. We're only about 200 folks. I don't even pastor all 200. Pastor Vaughn, somebody once asked him, how many do you pastor? To which they meant, how big is your church? But they asked it this way, how, how many do you pastor? Pastor Vaughn said, as many as will let me. Because really, we could grow a church to 5,000, but that doesn't mean I'm pastoring anybody. And if I'm not pastoring anybody, then we don't really have a church. It doesn't matter if 5,000 come through our doors, through eight services on a Sunday. If I'm not pastoring those people, it's not really a congregation. It's just kind of a Christian club. And so you've got to make sure as a Christian that you're not just coming to a church regularly, but you actually have a captain over you who can correct you, instruct you, challenge you, stretch you, make you uncomfortable, and get you out of the rut you've been in for however long you've been there. That takes a personal decision. And like with this whole allegory of David and his mighty men, they sought David out. He didn't put out flyers. He didn't put out a billboard that said, now meeting in the cave of Dulem, the first church of Davy, free coffee bar and hot pastries every Sabbath. They sought him out because he had what they didn't, and they wanted to be different. So it was totally on them. I'm sure he wasn't happy to see them dragging into his cave because now he's got to deal with waist issues. He's got to deal with food issues. He's got to deal with crying babies. He was trying to find some alone time, and 400 family members showed up with their families. Now we have at least 1,600 people living in a cave, and it ain't convenient. So that brings us to step six. Step five, 
Step four, they told David, we're terrified. You're telling your leader, I'm terrified. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm capable of this. So step five, trust your leadership to hear from God. David goes back, prays to God again, says, Lord, my men are terrified. Do you sure you want us to go up to Caleb and save those people? And David, uh, the Lord tells David, go up and I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. So step six in becoming a mighty man of valor is some stuff I'll tactfully say, you just shut up and do it afraid. It has to be done anyway, and you'll never overcome that fear until you step out and do it anyway. We're not talking about something dangerous. We're not talking about taking a mission trip to Afghanistan, to the middle of the Taliban. We wouldn't ask you to do that. But if we're asking you to go door-to-door evangelizing and you're afraid, go anyway. We often live too much of our lives submitted to a mental fear that is nothing but an enigma of our imagination. It's a figment. It's a specter. There's nothing even there, but we won't get close enough to just kind of waft our hand through it to see that there's nothing there. But that's why you need a captain in your life to say, get over that. That's not worth crying over. You should be crying over that. Why are you laughing at that? Why don't you have any joy? You need somebody outside your forest fire to tell you what to do. And Pastor Vaughn used to say, when your life's on fire, come to me because I can see where the extinguisher is when all you can see is flames. And we often, when we're on fire, we just want to run away and retreat and just, we'll find your charred corpse at another time. So step six, do it afraid. First Samuel 23, five. So David and his men went to Caleb and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Caleb. They did it. And they did it afraid, but even when, they, when they, even when they were afraid, they trusted their captain, and it all worked out okay anyway. This battle's nothing for David, but he's got 400 cowards. They've got skills. They can swing a sword. They can stab a straw dummy with a spear. They might can knock a little rock off of another rock with a sling because he's trained them, but they're not battle-tested yet. This battle's nothing for David, but he's got 400 men who are trained, but they're not experienced, and he hears from God, so he's able to look at his men and say, we're going anyway, and it's going to be okay. And you've got to be able to trust that when the pastor or the leader looks at you and says, we're going to do it anyway, and it's going to be okay. Or you can stay there the rest of your life. You can die skilled in the cave of Dulam, but not have any experience. And there's a huge difference between skill and experience. And if I had to have one or the other, I'd rather have experience than skill. Some folks like to just collect skills. But what good is skill if you never apply it? That comes back to mental Christianity versus practical Christianity, or theoretical versus applied Christianity. God did not change his commands to accommodate their fear. His plan stood, and the men had to rise in order to obey the orders. Ultimately, they were victorious. God knew their potential all along, though, given the choice, they would have remained in hiding. And that's why you need a leader, because he won't give you a choice. Choice B will be just like choice A, which is we're going door-to-door evangelizing, or we're raising the money for this missionary, or we're going to start a new church, and you're going up there. Well, I don't want to travel that new church. I don't care. I didn't ask. I told you. All right. Because given our choice, we're going to live like Cookville. Given your choice, you're going to smell like your region. Because if you didn't know it, no matter what region you live in, your region is stronger than you. Now, it's not stronger than the greater one that lives in you, 
but you're too busy living in your region and not living in the one that lives in you. So you need somebody who has punched through the region to say, come up and out of this junk. We got work to do. Because when you're left to your own devices, you smell like where you were raised. And that, that isn't the heavenly Jerusalem. You weren't raised in the heavenly Jerusalem. You were raised in a culture that was partially Christian, partially pagan, a little bit of lazy. Depending on where you're from, it has its own unique cultural sins. And that's why God raises up leaders to challenge you to do something different. When you study the timeline of the judges, every time God's people cried out because they were miserable, God's help came in the form of a captain called a judge. But that judge required something of the people. Because the people's deliverance wasn't all entirely God's responsibility. A big bulk of it was theirs. We might say you pull yourself up by your bootstraps when God commands you to. And once you pull your bootstraps up, then you get to marching. But we really are dealing with a new generation of entitlement where we want somebody to do for us. We got a welfare mentality. We got a nanny state. We got socialistic presidential candidates. Somebody's going to do for me. And the answer is no, he's not. God's not going to do anything for you unless you cry out to him. And when he answers you, his answer always comes with a command. Pick up your bed. Follow thou me. Take up your cross. The help of God usually sounds like a command that puts the ball back in your court. So the fearful and the faint need not apply. These, excuse me, God knew their potential all along, though given the choice they would have remained in hiding. Being stretched and inconvenienced is evidence of a leader's influence upon your life. How do you tell if you're being pastored in church? Are you being stretched and inconvenienced? And do you submit to that stretching and that inconveniencing? Because if you can come to church and never be stretched and never be inconvenienced, either it's a weak church or you're not actually pastored when you go there. And that's not necessarily the pastor's fault. It could be just you, the disconnect. I have friends that are great pastors, good preachers, very strong in the pulpit, and their church be full of sin, and there's some kind of disconnect between what he's communicating and what they're doing. And yet, if we would be somewhat honest, we might be able to say one of the worst one of the most fruitless preachers ever was Jesus Christ because he ministered in the power of God for three and a half years and started a church of 120 and had a bigger crowd crucifying him, jeering him at the cross than he did in the upper room. After three and a half years of preaching, that's all you can do, Christ? Not the, would that be the Lord's fault? Is that his leadership inability? Is that his lack of anointing? Disconnect between what's being said and what's being heard. And that's why he began many of his sermons or concluded by saying, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And that commandment still goes forth today because not everybody that comes to church has ears to hear. And I guarantee you, not everybody that goes to heaven is going to go to heaven a mighty man or woman of valor. We want to make sure we cross our finish line. Being stretched and inconvenienced is evidence of the leader's influence upon your life. Those without leaders never experience either a stretching or an inconveniencing. These first six steps are critical 
to overcoming fear. So one through six, these are critical to overcoming fear. The first six steps are basically how you start to get the ball rolling. If you never beat these first six steps, you don't have to worry about our next however many we've got. I think there's about another seven or eight. We're only halfway through the process. We're just now getting you over fear. And I can tell you, I've buried people who never overgot, overcame fear. And I would prophesy that I'll probably bury more before my time on earth is done who never beat fear. And that is not the will of God for our lives. The first six steps are critical to overcoming fear. These may be the most uncomfortable of all the steps because they occur while we are still wading in the waters of fear. These may be the hardest, but if you can beat these, it gets fun after this. Because you're doing the same thing you were always doing, but now you enjoy it. You're still going to battle after battle, but now you're good. After this, you're picking fights you didn't have to. This is the first battle. They're trying to talk their way out of it. After this, they're picking fights with lions because they can. They're going to fight giants without a weapon just to take the giant's weapon. It's sport for them. I told you, one of my dear friends I used to do judo jujitsu with was an avid outdoorsman. He's a park ranger now. And he was an avid hunter. But he said, you know, after a while, hunting with a rifle and a scope was no sport. So I took the scope off. And then after a while... That was no sport, so I went to black powder. And then after a while, that was no sport, so then I went to bow hunting. And then, you know what? Bow hunting with a compound bow, was, it just wasn't much sport, so I went to the old recurve bow and arrow. And then, you know what? I decided I'd make my own bows, and then I'd make my own arrows. And then I decided, he says, his name is Andrew, I would do it Indian style, like how you're supposed to sit, Indian style. It ain't crisscross applesauce. I want to be clear on that. So when I met Andrew, he was deer hunting with homemade bows and arrows with flint-napped arrowheads, deer sinew-wrapped uh, arrows, and he, had, he was harvesting his own turkey feathers. And that's how, because everything else is just too easy. This first battle for David and his mighty man, they're like, we're not, we're not doing this. We're scared. But before David is done with them, they're picking fights killing 800 at a time by themselves, going to battle without a weapon because it's too easy when I go to battle with a weapon. Let me kill somebody, then take their weapon, and then I'll kill some Philistines with Philistine weapons just to say I did it. There's a big difference between coming into church broke, discontented, and distressed, and now you're going out picking battles when you used to be afraid at their name. That's the process. We said last week, like they say on the football field, trust the process. But why were they gathered to David? Because they knew he was capable of this anyway. He had a testimony. He had a reputation. And they figured if that little boy from the sheep coats could do this, we can do it too. He had to pioneer it on his own. Unfortunately, many Christians will never leave these waters. Don't be one of those. Rise up and do it afraid. Step seven. This always proves people. You get over fear. Now you can expect escalation by association. Whoever you run with, whoever your captain is, like Dr. Barclay's always prayed, his enemies are going to become your enemies. I have been attacked on social media because I'm submitted to Dr. Barclay. Because we have a social media presence, we have an internet presence, and I can easily be found. If I weren't connected to Dr. Barclay, I wouldn't be slandered on 
the internet before being connected with Dr. Barclay, but I don't care about some nut job who has a computer in this day and age and who can make a voice known on the internet because he doesn't like Dr. Barclay and here's all his sons in the faith. Let me slander them too. That's just heaping up double judgment for him. But if you're a weak individual, you'll quit your captain because he's under attack. When it's nothing personal, you can't take it personal. You know, uh, Caleb is an Afghan war vet. They don't shoot at you because you're a white guy in a Humvee. They shoot at you because you have an American flag. He doesn't get shot at or see combat because his name is Caleb Andrews and he's from Tennessee. It's because he came representing the United States of America. Same with you. They don't care who you are. It's nothing personal. So don't make it personal. It's pe- <laughs> don't make it a petty thing about you. First Samuel 24, 3, and he, Saul, Saul came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. That means he was going number two, just so you understand the Old Testament lingo. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So here's what's happening. David and his men are fleeing. Kayla, even though they've delivered Kayla, David prays and says, Lord, will Kayla turn me over to Saul, and the Lord says, they will turn you over. Even though you delivered them, they will rat you out. So get out of here. So they flee, and Saul pursues with 3,000 of his best men. These men, David's men, are hiding. 400 men, they're hiding. They're hiding in caves. They happen to hide in a cave that Saul decides to go relieve himself in. They would not be hunted down, except that they were with David, and Saul's hunting David. So now they're at risk of death because they're with David. And so these men remained in the sides of the cave. They're terrified. Here's the king of Israel who's hunting David. We're David's mighty men or mediocre men at this point. We're David's men in making. And now all of a sudden we have escalation by association. It's one thing to go and fight Israel's enemies and win. It's another thing to have Israel's king begin to hunt you down. What do they call aiding and abetting a criminal? That's a, that's a crime as well. Not just, you won't go to, the criminal won't go to jail, you'll go to jail. I, uh, I ran into um, a pastor friend of mine last night. We were at the movies, and I was harassing him because he didn't call me, and he was talking smack. I said, look, I'm at the movies now with a federal marshal. He said, really? And his wife said, we know a fugitive. <laughs> and I said, okay, now I don't, I don't need to know any of this because I do have someone with me that's a federal marshal. And they're like, no, no, no. My friend said, yeah, her brother's a fugitive. He's wanted, he'll be doing 15 years. We can't even find him because if we did, we'd have to turn him over. So now I don't want to know any of this because now I'm like, okay, I was just making a joke. And now this thing just got real serious because I don't know what the liability is for me. Now I know a a marshal and then I know a fugitive. And should I put the two together? Should we get coffee after this? How does this work? (laughs) Guilt by association. And you got to understand, if you're running with holy people, you're going to be shot at. Oh, you go to that church. They mock Dr. Barclay's church. Dr. Barclay's church is called Living Word. It has the big, his dove emblem outside. The, the mockers call it Living Bird. Oh, you go to Living Bird Church. Uh, we used to be called a cult. We had chicken livers and, and snakes and scorpions and we'd snake handle and drink strychnine and, and they'd just run you down for that. 
I'd rather be called a cult, which typically means you're doing something right, than, oh, you go to the beer-drinking, fornicating church. Because no matter what you do or where you go, you're going to be talked about. Even in engineering firms, engineering firms have reputations. Oh, you work for that company, or you work for that federal agency, or if you're in the Army, everybody in the Air Force is in the Chair Force, or you're in the Chair Force, or you're just like a ground and pound. Or they, everybody is critical of whatever tribe they're not of. It's called immaturity. So you just need to jump in where God called you and block out all the ignorant folks and just march on for God. By association alone, David's men were in danger. Simply put, having a captain was becoming hazardous to their health and welfare. When Saul unknowingly wandered into their midst, David's men remained quietly hidden in the cave for either one of two reasons, either fear for their lives or respect for the king. Because here you're going to see the king go number two. That's a little embarrassing. I've never been anywhere in the world where going number two was openly praised. Everybody goes and has a quiet place to do it. Even when I've been out in the far bush, they'll put thatch, a thatch wall around so you can go squat in a little hole and have some uh, cover. I so I, as I thought about this, they're either remaining silent in the walls sides of the cave because they don't, they're embarrassed that they're seeing this is their king, go number two, or they're terrified of the king. I think it's the first one. I think they're terrified because if they make a noise, all he has to do is yell. And 3,000 men descend upon these 400 men, and it's a bloodbath. I believe it was fear because 400 courageous men could have easily taken one elderly king while he was using the bathroom. So I asked the question Will you remain faithful to your captain even when your association with him causes you duress and hardship? A lot of folks, they're submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll lose a job because of it. They'll lose a promotion because of it. They might lose their life because of it. Will you deny your faith in Christ? Because being a Christian is not a cool thing anymore. We're the most ridiculed people on the planet now. Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet now. They, it was something like 12 Christians an hour are, are martyred now, are executed or killed around the world. I think that was a t- statistic I read a week or two ago. Just, just keeps ticking along. Every five minutes, there's a Christian killed for their faith. It's the day we live in. Step eight, don't forget you're a servant. So while he's in this cave, and I'm kind of picturing this thing, and you you have to let your mind go there to understand the timeline. They see Saul come in. They don't know why he's coming in, so they get quiet. If you've ever been in a cave, the shadows are cast along the walls, so they're hiding in the walls of the cave. They see Saul come in. Who knows how far he comes in? He doesn't come in too far because he can't lose total light to use the bathroom. And at some point, somebody says, the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hand, king. Kill him. Kill Saul. And so David listens to that and then has to creep up to Saul without being heard, which means he's not moving fast, cut off the corner of his robe so he's that close to Saul, and then retreat without being seen because I, I, don't, know if he, I don't know how Saul cleans up. I don't know how they cleaned up if he did clean up, but you know, if he's adjusting his robes, he's probably going to turn around and maybe see there's a human being laying. So he's, I got to envision that David creeps backwards. So there's a time gap here. There's a period of time. At some point, David retreats and he says to his servants, he stays them and says, do not rise against Saul. And he says this specifically. He said, either 
he, God will smite him. Either his time to die will come or he'll die in battle. But we're not going to lift up our hand against the Lord's anointed. But I want you to see, these are the mighty men of valor, but David calls them his servants. Now, not to be crass, but my mind thinks, I think Saul probably sat there a long time going number two because David creeps up, cuts the robe off, creeps back, talks his men down, and then it says, but Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. So there's a big period of time here. You could probably make a joke about how long a man takes in the bathroom. He was probably checking the news, checking Drudge Report on his, his uh, papyrus iPad or something. He was in there a while. <laughs> his eye papyrus. They had those. First century. Now this is about uh, 1400 B.C. <laughs> David's men felt comfortable enough around David to give him advice. That comes back to the kind of relationship you should have with your captain. Like I said last week, they're encouraging him to assassinate the king. There is a, there's a strong rapport when you can look at your chief and say, we should go assassinate somebody. You feel comfortable with that kind of advice. There he is. Let's go assassinate. Go get, you do it. King, you do it. David, you assassinate him. In this case, the advice involved assassinating King Saul. David addressed his men. Here they are called servants. Our step eight is we cannot forget we're a servant. You must never forget that no matter how big you get, you are still a servant. You must always be eager to hear instructions, corrections, wisdom, and commands and carry them out with the right heart. I got to think if I'm one of David's men and I know Dave, uh, King Saul is hunting me down because I'm associated with David and here we have an opportunity to kill King Saul. If David won't do it, I'll kill David and I'll kill Saul and I can go home in peace. But they respected him, they served him, they obeyed him. Why couldn't one man rise up and say, all right, the 399 of us, let's charge Saul and David. We'll put both these guys down because they're both, we're in danger because they can't get along. But that would be insurrection, that'd be mutiny, that'd be insubordination. But what they did was submit because they were servants. You always have to be able to hear instructions, corrections, wisdom, and commands and carry them out and do so with the right heart. For the right thing with the wrong heart is still the wrong thing. The right thing with the wrong heart is still the wrong thing. We want it done with the right heart. All right, you're listening so good. You still thinking about the king looking at his eye papyrus? He's an older man. He maybe didn't have his metamucil. He might have been a little backed up. But either way, I've done a lot of caving. You don't crawl fast, and it's, caving is not a quiet thing. You're stepping on rocks. They're clinking. He's there a while, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And every wife would say, amen, that's about right. That's about right. While we're on it, don't judge me. Don't, you don't know where I'm going with this. You don't know where I'm going with this. One of our people here at the church has done work among the unions. I think it's the unions. And he told me that there was a guy on the unions who had kept a, some t a total summary of all the time he'd spent for the company using the bathroom. So he could say, after 25 years of working for the union, I've been paid $45,000 to go number two. 
That's pretty shiftless. But that might also be described as the union mentality. I, see, you, you didn't know where I was going to go with that, but you all moaned and sighed at me. I don't know, maybe that's my reputation. Oh, here we go. <laughs> all right, step number nine. Confidence arises as experience is gained. You will never have confidence without stepping into experience. The reason, one of the reasons you need a captain is to push you into new experiences. Most people are left doing their own thing at their own pace, at their own rate. When God's people cry out from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, when God's people cry out for help, God sends a man or a woman. We're expecting a burning bush. We're expecting an angel. We're expecting God to supernaturally deliver us. But we cry out to God from, from the book of Judges, from the time of the Exodus. When, when Israel cried out, 430 years of crying out to God, what did they get? A Moses. You would think 430 years of prayer would get you more help than a man. But that's how God works. And that man led them into places they could have never gone by themselves and gave them a confidence and an experience they would have never been able to get as slaves. 1 Samuel 25, 13, And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men, and 200 abode by the stuff. This is when they're going to go to war against uh, Nabal, the churlish man, who has a, he's a wealthy man with his own army, and he is going to, uh, he wants to mock David for asking, David asked for some foodstuffs. And so he looks at his men and says, get swords, we're going to war. For the first time, if you look at it, we're in chapter 25 now, David's men don't say, we're scared. There's no back talk, there's no banter, there's no fear. They all get on their sword, they're ready to go kill something. We finally have experience, we finally have confidence. This thing works, David works. God's with this David. I'm glad I'm with this David. It's taken a couple years to get here. You only gird a sword for one reason, war. And when every man is commanded to put on a sword, there can really be only one, one reason, that's war. But this time there is no indication of fear, no questioning, no complaining, no excuse making. In this verse, we are beginning to really see the benefits and changes that come with having a captain. He gives a command. They don't even have to say, I don't want to. It is, all right, what are we killing? Where are we going? We're going to go attack Nabal. They don't even ask, how many men does he have? How big is his standing army? How many servants does he have in his home? What kind of weapons do they have? Do they have horses? Do they have chariots? Is he just a rich guy with kind of like a little posse? Or is he more like a little sultan with a more of an army? They don't ask. They just get their swords on because they're realizing God's wind is to their back. And if David says we're going to war, we're going to war. But we're three steps past overcoming fear. I guess I might interject here. Every one of your lives is called to do much greater things than you were taught to do. And so you need to make sure you're overcoming any fear, any insecurity, so you can fulfill the potential God has put in you. Even along life, even as you're serving God, things will happen that will try to put new fear in you. You've got to get over that and keep marching on. I, 
is not a good example, but even like as much missionary work as we've done, when Marlon and I had the terror attack, we went through the terrorist attack of Brussels, that could put some fear in you to never get on an airplane again. But you got to get over that and march on. You have a car accident, and you put a fear in you to never drive again. I've got friends, I've got pastor friends who won't go do missionary work because they're terrified of flying. Well, you're called to go into all the world and greater is he that's in you than he that's flying the airplane. So get on that airplane and obey God. And they almost, one guy almost kind of boasting, yeah, I'll never do missionary work. I'm just terrified of flying. Okay, you're not a good leader. I don't know how you got this far bragging about fear, but we don't brag on fear. We beat it and we march on. Hear the words of my friends from college. If any idiot can do it every day, so can you. If idiots can win, you can win. So find an idiot who's better than you at something and follow that idiot in that area. <laughs> now that's probably bad counsel. Don't follow idiots. My point is, if idiots can beat it, you can beat it too. Amen. Make it this far in the process and you'll see the same benefits. Step 10. Look for opportunities to be with your captain. 1 Samuel 26, 6. Now, that doesn't mean call me up if I'm your captain and let's go do something together because I can't do that with everybody. But you look for opportunities. We're always up here doing something. We're always going someplace. We're always doing some kind of ministry. But you've got to look for opportunities to be with your captain. I guess I could probably safely guess in any church, half the people won't even care about that. They're just not even interested in being pushed because they don't want ripples. They, they like things just status quo. But Pastor Titus from Zimbabwe has always told me the only way to become great is to rub elbows with greatness. Or I might even just say, rub elbows with greater people than you. Get around folks that are better than you at what you want to be good at. That's the only way you get good at it. Ask for pointers. Ask lots of questions. I would say in our church, as in any church, some of you are really good about talking about yourself. You need to stop that because most folks don't care about you, not in the way you do. But a good way to be a sociable person and to learn and to make somebody feel important is when you're around them, ask them questions about them. Ask them questions about what they do. What's that like? How'd you get good at that? What does that involve? And if you do that with 20 people in a month, you've just broadened your base of education. You've learned something about them. You've made them feel important. They like you now. Now you've got influence in their life for the gospel. And you haven't come across as being a pompous idiot. All by saying, what's your name? What do you do? What made you get into that? What kind of schooling was involved in that? How, how's it going? You like it? Is it stressful? How's the economy treating that? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? Really? I never knew that was a hobby. Tell me more. You're getting smarter. And you're getting better. And you're making them feel like a million bucks. Look for opportunities to be with your captain. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother to Joab, Abishai is his nephew. Abishai is David's nephew. Zariah is David's sister, just so you know. Brother to Joab. Joab is also David's nephew. Remember lots of times David said, you sons of Zariah, what are you doing to me? Because those guys like to kill people. But he made them into that. They, they caught his vision a little too zealously. So he says to two men, Ahimelech and Abishai, who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? He asks two guys, who wants to go with me? They both could have come. Abishai says, I will. Now, now granted, what does it mean to go down to the camp? 
they're being pursued by Saul and 3,000 Navy SEALs again, chief soldiers chosen by Saul just to hunt David. David has found out where they're sleeping down in these woods. And the Bible says specifically they're laid out and they're in, the, in trenches and all the men are surrounding Saul and Saul sleeping in the middle. And David comes to these two guys and says, who wants to go with me to see Saul? <laughs> and maybe why he only had two guys he could go to. And Abishai says, I'll go. I'll do it. So they do. These guys are nuts. They sneak down. I mean, 3,000 guys, are they all going to be asleep at once? Isn't there a guard posted? I got to think so. So you, you got to sneak. And close, close, of course, the closer you get in, the more confident they are. But you got to get into the middle. And there they are standing over Saul. He's asleep. And they start talking. Abishai starts talking. You have to go study the story. He's like, here he is, David. Kill him. Let's kill him. Kill him now. He's right here. God's delivered him in your hand. And David has to say, we're not going to do it. But take his spear, take his, his, uh, his flask, take everything that's his. They went all the way down there, could have killed him again, but they just wanted to steal some stuff to say we could have done it again. Abishai said, I will go down with thee. David's men had grown from hiding from Saul to sneaking into the middle of his encampment while he slept. This camp contained 3,000 men. David wanted someone to go with him. Abishai, this is the man that became the slayer of 300 with the spear and was responsible for the deaths of 18,000 men at the Battle of Edino. Abishai offered to go with David. Your captain wants someone to go with him as well. Abishai went on to be one of David's mightiest men. You got to be willing to do it. Inconvenience, a little bit risky. But if you're left to your own devices, this is as good as you get. You don't get better without being challenged or pressed. And if you're following someone, follow them to see how they became great. I think David would have gone alone, don't you? I think he would have, if nobody would go, he'd just go by himself. So in conclusion here, have you made it this far in the process? Because we still got a couple more steps. Are you willing to be changed? Are you willing to get the most out of your captain? Do you even have a captain? You guys know I've never served in the military, but some of you have, and I greatly respect that. But you've got guys that are assigned on the military base, so they live on the base. They come and go on the base, but they're submitted to leadership on the base. Their life is tied to the base. And when it comes down to it, if something goes sideways, the base will fight for them. Then you've just got delivery guys that go on base or on post to deliver stuff. They come and go at the base as well, but if things go sideways, they're not responsible for the FedEx guy. They're not responsible for the food delivery guy. They're not responsible for the, the off-site IT guy. And there are Christians in every church. They're just delivery people. Yeah they, they, yeah, they come and go at the local church, but they're not submitted. They're bringing stuff and they're taking stuff. And they're bringing, but they're not really submitted to any chain of command. So when things go sideways and they don't show up again, we'll just think FedEx traded out drivers for us. But if you're submitted in the military and you don't show up, they got a roster, they got a role. Either you're AWOL or you're in trouble. Either way, they're coming for you. You better hope you're hurt. <laughs> Otherwise, you, they're going to hurt you. And the body of Christ is the same way because it's the army of God. We're not just FedEx folks delivering to the local church and we leave when we want to, we come when we want to. We have to be plugged in so God can do something in our lives. Have you made it this far in this process? Are you willing to be changed? Are you getting the most out of your captain? Or do you even have a captain?
Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Bless us as we continue to study becoming a mighty man or woman of valor. And we declare, Lord, these lessons will go on in the future through pod school to bless those that listen. May more and more men and women of God become what they're called to be. In Jesus' name, amen.